0: And I want us to think about how what a great tragedy it is. One of the great tragedies on earth is a person who lives their life with no idea of what their their purpose is. What is your purpose? Now, I want you to see how the things that we've been talking about over the last month are going to come full circle this morning in this passage of Scripture. That things that I've been alluding to, that I've been talking about, that Paul's been showing us, through the things he's writing to this ch- the church at Corinth that he loves so much are going to sort of take some some real tangible shape in our lives this morning so that we can see we can see this purpose that we've been talking about and this this mission and we can see it through the the these words of the apostle Paul. See Paul this is when we were when we were looking at the book of Hosea for example I explained to you how in the book of Hosea you see, I think, the the vulnerable side of God. You see God in His most uh, just open to the way He he feels. It's it's very unique. Well, here in 2 Corinthians, we see the, the most vulnerable side of the Apostle Paul through the leading of the Holy Spirit, that we see things about Paul that we, if it weren't for some of these passages in 2 Corinthians, we just wouldn't know because it wouldn't seem that things are the way that they are. See, I want you to think about how in modern Christianity, what, what most people tend to think about, they, they, if I were to say that God's Concern for us is, is our influence and the stewardship of our influence that we've been talking about. People think about influence as their actions, what we do. We're, we're a culture that's consumed with doing. And the Bible is not consumed with doing, the Bible's consumed with being. We're human beings, we're not human doings. Doing's are important, but I have told you this for years. It's not what you do as much as it is why you do it. That's what God's driving at. And see, when we talk about influence, we think, well, that's measured by our actions, by the words that we speak or the things that we lead or the the deeds that we do or the people that we help or the activities that we support. We think that by doing all the right things that we're right. But you see, the great impact that we can have on the lives of the people around us does not come through actions alone. It won't come apart from actions, but it won't come through actions alone. It comes through this influence, this real influence that God gives us the opportunity to have. You see, everywhere that you go you create some kind of atmosphere. It, it travels around with you. I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but when you walk into a room and uh, you and people know you, it, it, you bring something into that atmosphere with you. Like when you get home from work, when a father walks into his house, there's an at, the atmosphere changes. Sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. You have this this thing about you. When you walk into a room, when you're around the people that you work with or you go to school with or you do life with, do you bring stress to that situation or peace? Gentleness or harshness? Are you somebody who is known by your affection or by your Coldness. See, what kind of, of atmosphere accompanies you when you go the places that you go, when you're around the people that you're around? See, a lot of times there are people that do a lot of good things. They do the things that they're supposed to do but they do it with a lousy attitude. They do it with a, with a condemning spirit. And so they're doing good things, but they bring stress or insensitivity or criticism with them into those actions. And so what happens is all the things that they're doing And some of you know this. Some of you, you grew up in homes around people like this. Or you grew up around people like this. And some of you, let's be honest, are people like this. And the truth is, is that you've done a lot of good things in your life. But it hasn't made a difference. It hasn't made a difference. The reason it hasn't made a difference is because You thought it was just about doing. See, after it's all said and done, people aren't going to remember exactly what you said. And they're not going to remember a lot of things that you did. But you know what? They're going to remember the influence you left on their life. I always sit with families before we have a funeral service and we go around the room and I, I ask the family, I say, describe your loved one in one word. It's a hard question. And usually there's a pause, a long pause while they're thinking. And then someone speaks up and then another, and another, and then the words start going. It's influence. That's what that is. There's, there's thousands of things that their loved one did that no one remembers, and thousands of things that they said that no one remembers. But what they do remember is wrapped up in influence. It's this It's this beautiful picture that Paul's been driving us towards. And I've told you multiple times, we've written this down, that kingdom influence is the primary purpose of our lives. That's the purpose that God puts us as his people. Those of us in the room that are his, God puts us where we are to be to be an influence to not just do things. See, see, God doesn't God didn't God's not 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 working in our lives because he needs things done. He could do them himself better than we ever could. It's not just about doing things. It's not just about saying things. My goodness. It's about doing, saying, being being an influence for the kingdom. So Paul is under attack. At this, this is a church that he loves, and we've seen how, how hard this has been for him as, as you know, false teachers have moved in, and, and he's, been, he, he's, he's been through the ringer with the church at Corinth. But here's the thing. Like, like any pastor will do anything, We'll do anything when we've seen radical transformation in people's lives. Like anything. I'll run through a brick wall. Because no matter how tough or discouraging or hard life gets, I just think about you. And I just think about all the stories in this place, in this room of all the lives that have been transformed in so many amazing ways. And I'm ready to go again. And so he's fighting for his love for this church, and he wants to see them flourish. And so here's 2 Corinthians, we're to verse 12. And he says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed to Macedonia. See, remember last week we talked about how one of the problems was that they had accused Paul of being not dependable, unfaithful, untruthful because he had told them he was going to try to come visit twice and he wasn't able to do that. And so uh, that was one of the big hang-ups. And so Paul... Is now giving us a little insight into what's going on. See, they, they had accused Paul of being uh, mighty in his letters. We're going to see in a couple weeks. But weak in person. That, oh, he writes these big letters, but he shows up and he's, you know, he's, he's not, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't have any physical stature. He doesn't dress the part. He doesn't. Uh, you know he, he he doesn't he doesn't do the things that these super apostles as they call themselves do. So they say Paul you're weak you're weak. And so here Paul's talking about. He's responding to, the claim that he's weak. And so do you know what he does? They say, Paul, you're weak. And what most people would do is say, no, I'm not weak. I'm strong. Let me show you how strong I am. But not Paul. Paul says, oh, you think I'm weak? You don't know the half of it. I'm weaker than you think I am. That's what Paul does. See, Paul shares his heart. Now, this is, this is amazing, these two verses. You, you never see this anywhere else in Scripture. Paul's talking about this time of great weakness that no one would know about unless he was sharing it with the church at Corinth. See, Paul had sent Titus to Corinth to see how they had responded to the severe letter, the letter that Paul had written in between First and 2 Corinthians. So he, he was worried about what their response was. So he sent Titus, go check it out and see how things are going. He was burdened and concerned and This is a church he loves and invested so much in. So he was eagerly awaiting for Titus to come back and to give him word. How would they respond? Are they going to, after that, are they going to just turn their back? Are they going to quit? Are they going to, did I push them too far? Is it going to be all lost? And see, Paul knew that Titus would have to go through Troas on his way to Macedonia. Paul knew that. And so Paul's waiting and, and hoping and wanting to talk to, to Titus. So, I mean, to, yeah, so bad. So here's what he does. He goes to intercept him because he can't wait. He can't wait for him to come back. So he goes to the halfway point to meet him so that he could find out. What's the news? What happened? But Titus didn't show up. He never showed. See, Paul says, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother. He went all the way there. Every step of the way, he's just concerned and worried and hoping and praying and wanting The church at Corinth to do the right thing and to flourish. And and he gets there and there's no Titus. I mean, how how stressed out was Paul? How serious is this moment in his life? Like how all-consuming was his concern for this church? Look at what the Bible tells us. I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. you see that? A door was opened to me by the Lord. There was opportunity for the gospel. There were people there that were receptive to what I was saying. See, no one knows what an an open door to the gospel looks like better than Paul. No one's ever been more successful than Paul at bringing the gospel to places where the gospel isn't. Paul knows this, and he sees this. He knows what it feels like, what it looks like, what it smells like. And so he sees it in Troas. It's the thing he lives for. But he said, I had no rest in my spirit because Titus wasn't there. I was so burdened for Corinth that I left. I left an open door. See, this imagery of an open door, Paul only uses this, it's only found in the Bible to to symbolize a divinely appointed opportunity from God Like in Colossians 4, meanwhile praying also for us, he asked the church at Colossae that they would pray that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. See, he was so anxious, so consumed that all he could do was walk away. See, some of you you have never seen this side of Paul before. You're, you're shocked. The great hero, Paul, just walked away. You ever been so depleted? You just didn't have anything else to give? You ever been just empty to the point where Even if you saw an opportunity, you just didn't have anything in you to exercise it, to operate in it. Sure. I mean, are there any moms in here this morning who... You've been in situations where you see opportunities all around you. You can see them, but your tank is so empty. You're so exhausted, so burdened, so challenged by all the things that are going on in your life. You just don't have any more to give. See, sometimes there's one thing in your life. Maybe it's one child or maybe it's your marriage or maybe it's your parents or maybe it's something. Maybe it's you. But you, but 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 you know what I'm talking about. Where maybe maybe there's some critical situation where with with one child that has you so consumed that even though you see the, the the opportunities in your other children and opportunities that you would normally take advantage of, but you can't. You you don't have anything to give into those because you cannot do anything with this unresolved situation. See, haven't we all been in, been in this place where it's just too much? It's just too much. See, Paul is going to go on in chapter 7, and he's going to say, For indeed, tell us more, that when, he, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side outside were conflicts inside were fears what are the what what are the conflicts what are the fears he's talking about this situation he's talking about corinth he's talking about what's going on and then in in chapter 11 he's going to say three times i was beaten with rods once i was stoned three times i was shipwrecked at night and day i've been in the deep and journeys often and Perils of water, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen and perils of the Gentiles, perils of the city, perils of wilderness and perils of the sea, perils among false brethren, in the weariness and toil and sleeplessness often in hunger and thirst and fastings in cold and nakedness. besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, deep concern for all the churches. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, yeah, I've I've faced all kinds of physical beatings and been close to death and been through, but that's only part of the story. The real debilitating things are the concern, the deep concern for the, the churches. Has the Has the influence that God's given me, Paul would say. Has it done its work for the kingdom in those places? Or did somehow I. Misuse or not steward. That influence as I should have. That's Paul. See. In God's economy, our strengths are dangerous and our weaknesses are glorious it's opposite here is paul who is under attack personally and it's not just about him personally because he knows that what's riding all this on all of this is the is the truths that he's laid down in the lives of these people and and so what his great concern is that they're going to be led astray and all of that is predicated on his integrity. And yet, you know what? He doesn't defend himself and try to tell them how strong he is. But he shows them weakness that they could have never known. He says, no, I'm, I'm way weaker than that. Because he understands that our strengths are just Dangerous. See, you know the same thing I know. That what happens is, is that if we, without, you know, I don't mean to oversimplify, but to paraphrase, what happens is we, we come to faith in Christ and we come with, these, with, with giftedness. We come with, with personality and ability and, and then we get spiritual gifts and all those things come to, to, to bear on our lives. And, and here's what often happens. As we begin to steward influence and God begins to move us from, from from one place to another, put us in greater and greater positions of influence, He has to break down all those strengths in us. He has to break us of the tendency that we have to just rely upon our strengths. And He does it in our, in our lives in different and unique ways. But He does it because He loves us. And because He wants us to, to operate not in our strength, but in His. And so then He says in verse 14, look. So now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. You see? Influence. So what he's talking about here is he says now, God who always leads us in triumph. This word triumph, it, it's very specific. It is referring to a specific thing, a Roman custom, where a victorious general would... would come in, would would be granted by the emperor the the privilege of a triumph and so he would come into the 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 city it would be a parade on his behalf and he would he all of uh, all of his soldiers would be a part of that and they would bring all the 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 spoils of battle and also those captured and would all be on display, and all the people would line the sides of the streets and would cheer and celebrate, and it was a big celebration of victory. It was a triumph. That's what a triumph was. I want you to, to notice, again, look at the screen, look at this verse. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us, us, in triumph in Christ, us. I want you to understand something that when the victorious general is granted a triumph, all the soldiers participate in the parade, they experience the parade. In other words, they walk the same path as the general does. It's not everyone just cheering for the general. They get to experience that. They get to walk and feel the, uh, the, the crowds and the cheers and, the, and, and experience that whole amazing moment. See, the triumph is a celebration centered around the victorious general, but it's experienced by all those under the command of that general. And that's important for us to understand because he says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. You see, we're we're not the the general. But we're part of his army, aren't we? See, we experience the triumph because we're his. His. See, the only other place the Bible uses this word translated triumph is in Colossians 2. And here's what it says in Colossians 2. Talking about what Christ accomplished on the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. See, remember, I've been been telling you that There is no battle between good and evil going on, between God and Satan. That's not how that works. The battle is just going on between His influence through us and the enemy's influence through the world. Remember that conversation? And I've been telling you that that battle's been won. And here you see in Colossians chapter 2, it's complete, Christ is, is victorious, the battle's been won. The triumph. Who did he triumph over? The principalities and the powers. He didn't win some little skirmish. No, no, he won the war. It's been won. But so when the Bible says that he always leads us in triumph in Christ, that's not, the meaning here is not that life's always going to be easy for those who are followers of Jesus. Jesus. Here's what it means. It means the Bible wants us to see that the battle's real, that Jesus gave his real life, that he shed his real blood against a real enemy. It wasn't easy, but it is completed, it is done. That's important for us to understand. All of us are going to fight real battles along the way. All of us are going to be like Paul. There's going to be no rest in our spirit. We're going to be so overwhelmed at times. We're going to face difficulties that we don't know how to get out of. There's going to be battles in relationships. There's going to be battles with health. There's going to be battles with addiction, with depression, with disappointment, with loneliness. All of these things are going to come about in our lives. We're going to have to face them. They're real battles against real enemies. But that's why the Bible tells us, again, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. The defeated foe is still harassing us, rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Yes, that's what's going on. That's what all of this is about. So see, when Paul says, I had no rest in my spirit because I didn't find Titus, my brother, there, it's a real battle. It's not a make-believe enemy. It's a real struggle in, in a real man's life who is a real follower of Jesus. It was just like me, it's just like you. And it causes pain and it causes suffering. And we need to understand that we have a real enemy, but our real enemy is really defeated. It doesn't make him any less real, he hasn't yet been rendered powerless. And we've talked about why this is. But I just want you to understand how influence works into this whole scenario that God wants us to see. He wants us to know that following Christ doesn't make your life go easy. Following Christ makes your life end in victory. That's what it does. It makes your life end in victory. See, again, he says, thanks be to God who always leads us, but who always, who always, always leads us. He always leads us in triumph in Christ. You say, but... This is what I want to be sure that you understand. You don't want to be ignorant of the devices of Satan last week, remember? And how might we do that? We're ignorant of the devices of Satan when we think that when the Bible says God always leads us in triumph, that that means that we're never going to struggle or we're never going to suffer or we're never going to and that cannot be true. Because all this is said in the context of Paul talking about his trials and his suffering, right? So, what does this mean? He always leads us in triumph. What does it mean? I thought about, now how am I going to explain this to you? Well, it's, it's, it's sort of like... Have you ever won at something that you're not good at? Like, have you ever won at something? Have you ever competed against a lot of people that were really good at something and you weren't good at it and you beat them? I have. See, some of you may not know this, but uh, over the last 25 years that I've been here, up until recently... So I actually lost my undefeated title, thanks to the Joseph Home. Because prior to the creation of the Joseph Home Golf Tournament, yours truly was the reigning undefeated two-time champion of the Michael Memorial Golf Tournament. You're looking at him. First place, first annual golf tournament, winner. Second, church-wide golf tournament, winner. It's amazing. We should just bask in the moment. I mean, I thought about going pro. See, some of y'all think I stink at golf. Well, now, I've shot a 70, but then I had to do the back nine. (laughs) See, in a golf tournament, it's really not about how good you are at golf. That really doesn't have anything to do with it. Victory in a golf tournament is 100% predicated on who you got on your team. And the way that we made sure that there would be no cheating is that it was just randomly selected. So that, you know, you couldn't like stack up a team. And So that first golf tournament we have, I go out there, I literally got paired with a guy I hadn't even met before so I'm like hey how you doing you know we start you know I don't even know this guy turns out he was you know the grown son of I knew his parents real good they'd been going to church here a long time but he had just recently relocated here so well so I don't know how this is gonna go well <laughs> so we get to the first hole and he gets up on the tee box, puts the ball there, gets his, you know, I noticed, man, that's some nice clubs you got there. He gets his driver out and, whew, pew, I mean, straight down the middle, 300 yards. Picks up his tee, says, your turn. I'm like, I'm good. <laughs> He's like, you're not going to hit. I'm like, no point. See, every time we got to the green, literally, when the when it was, you know, when, when the, the ball was sunk into the cup, you know, there'd be, there was two carts. There was four of us. I'm riding with him. So I'm, my job is I'm the scorekeeper. So I'd go, all right, I got a 10. What'd you get? Eight. All right. What'd you get? Six. All right. Then I go, what'd you get? And he'd go, three. Thank you. And I'd go, I'd write three down. We won. <laughs> but I didn't do nothing, but I'm winning. See, if you're smart enough to have the right person on your team, you win. You win because of them. You understand? See, if you don't have Jesus on your team, you're not very smart. See, the Bible says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He he gives who the victory? Do we win the victory? No, he gives it to us. You see, what happens is at the end of this life, we all got to stand before God and give account for our lives. But just before you stand before God, if you know Jesus, he hands you his scorecard, and he takes yours. He gives us the victory. And so we're celebrating this triumph, this victory parade. We're in the parade. We didn't defeat the enemy; the hero did. But we get to experience the parade. Yeah. See, you remember, you remember, uh, you remember when the Saints won the Super Bowl. A lot of people thought that never happened. They won the Super Bowl. And I remember watching the parade when they got back to New Orleans. And you know, them people are crazy. I mean, they shut the schools down. They closed Everything was closed down for like three days. They were pumped. And so when they had the parade for the team, I mean, every person, I mean, people from, from everywhere, I mean, it was just unreal the amount of people that were there screaming and yelling and cheering. And, and I remember watching that. And you know what I, w- I was thinking to myself? I was looking at those players and all that screaming and stuff, and I was thinking about those guys that never played a single down. They didn't even break a sweat. And you know what? They get the same ring everybody else gets. They riding in the parade. That's me. Jesus did it all. And I get to ride in the parade. The triumph. Look at verse 15. and Let me show it to you. You can't look at it. For we're to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? See? Influence. I told you it wasn't just Saying the right things or doing the right things. It's not about doing, it's about being. That's what Paul's talking about right here. He's talking about how God uses all of us. And I don't mean all of us, I mean all of us, all of me and all of you. He uses all of what makes you, all of your words and your actions and, and your, 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 the, the, The things that are in your heart, the way that you are, he uses all that. So that when, when, when you're walking in the power of the Spirit, when people encounter you and they can tell that you've been with Jesus, what happens is it brings out what people are already thinking about him. You know what I mean? That their responses are often an indicator of where they are spiritually. Yeah, I'm not the only one that experiences this. You do too. You know, sometimes people just don't like you. And you don't understand why. And it's because you love Jesus. And so they don't like you for that. Yeah. You know... If, if there's somebody that we encounter and they're seeking to know more about Christ, then they should be drawn to the fragrance of Christ in our lives. The influence. But they, They're curious. They want to know more. And the same is true when we meet people who are mad at God. A lot of times their anger then is directed towards us because they they can smell Christ on us. They know. See, if you think about it, if you, if you walk in a room and you smell fresh flowers, what's the first thing you do? You look for the flowers. See, when someone walks in a room and they smell Jesus, you know what they do spiritually? They immediately start seeking the source of that smell, just like we do. Where is that smell coming from? Who is that? Yeah. Who, who, who's the, who in here? And just like a physical smell, just like when you take those fresh flowers out of the room the smell doesn't leave with the flowers. It lingers in there, doesn't it? Yeah. So see, your influence hangs around longer than you do physically. So that's why when you die, what you leave behind is how well you've stewarded your influence. At 620 this morning. Jimmy Hover went to be with Jesus. Yeah. Man, is he happy. Influence. 40 years. He served as treasurer of this church for 40 years. But that's not the greatest thing he ever did. The greatest thing he ever did was he, he influenced this old rotten, long-haired beach bum that started dropping jet skis off in his front yard so his son could fix them. And he welcomed me into his house, and he treated me like I was part of his family. And I could smell Jesus on him. And see, his influence in my life was unparalleled. And so, everybody's life that I've ever influenced, he's part of that. I just remember thinking to myself, I'd never been around people like this before. I knew something was different, and I was curious. I could smell it. You know that passage in John chapter 12 when Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead and, you know, that was a pretty uh, earth-shattering moment. And So then they're all eating together and the Bible says in, in John 12 that Mary took a pound of costly oil and spanked and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the Bible says and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. That everybody there was overwhelmed by the scent of this oil. This this just overpowering smell of beautiful wonderful smell and and Jesus loved it and the disciples loved it and Lazarus and his family loved it and everybody loved it except for one person. One person didn't like that smell. I wonder why he didn't like that smell. The Bible says he immediately spoke up and started condemning her for what she had done because he was mad about that smell. See, because there was one thing that Judas couldn't tolerate. He could tolerate the miracles and the crowds and the this and the that, but there was one thing he couldn't tolerate, and that was he couldn't tolerate anything that forced him to have to reckon with Jesus actually being God. You see, he had to convince himself, oh, he's not really the Messiah. That's the only way he could betray him, right? Yeah. And so he didn't like that smell. To him, it wasn't the smell of life. It was the smell of death. But to everyone else, the same smell was the smell of life. See, Jesus knew in that very moment that it wasn't about death. See, he was, he was six days out from, from his mission. He was six days out from the zenith point. See, because when the time comes for Jesus' body to be put in the ground God's going to be accomplishing something new something never seen something we could only get a glimpse of when Lazarus was raised from the dead. God was about to turn the whole world upside down. Bring a whole new meaning into creation. He was about to face down and conquer his enemies once and for all. And then he was going to invite his creation to join him in the eternal celebration of his triumph. Yeah. But to Judas, it was the aroma of death. Listen, you can't get wrapped up in how people respond to your influence, you just have to focus on making sure that you live your life for the purpose for which it's created. That wherever you go and whatever you do, that you're influencing people for the right things in the right way. That they see Jesus in you. And some are going to smell life and some are going to smell death. But you just stay faithful. You just stay faithful. Steward that influence. See, life is about influencing people to smell the sweetness of Christ's triumph and join us in his victory parade. Yes. Yes, it is. It's unbelievable to think that we have the opportunity to be a part isn't it yeah so if you're worried about the influence that you're going to leave behind understand something it's what you're doing today that's going to create that influence